Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Off the Looking Glass. I'm Kate Fagan. I'm Jessica Smetana. Jess, do we have a show today? We say that every week, Kate. (laughs) Well, every show is amazing, so that's why we say it every week. That's true. Okay, what do we have today? I wrote an extra extra. It's the first extra extra of the new iteration of Off the Looking Glass underneath our new logo. Wow. So that means it's really good because it took you like eight months to write it. Okay, cool. I've been working on it every day for eight months, Jess. (laughs) But, okay, Jess, have you ever felt like somebody stole something from you, your idea? Have you ever been talking to a friend and you had some, like, good tweet and then hmm. they tweeted it? You know, that feeling. Well, people steal my SpongeBob meme tweets all the time, Kate, but I, I get used to this feeling. This has probably happened to you before. Have you ever been in a meeting where you suggest an idea and then someone's like, oh, that was a good idea from someone else. And they attribute it to, like, some other guy. It's usually oh. a man, right? And you're, yes. like, sitting there stewing, like, should I correct them? Yes. That was my idea. But it's, you know, not that important. So maybe you don't. That happens right. in the workplace you, sometimes, Kate. You don't want to be petty about it. You know, but you a do. team player. doesn't right. matter who said it, but you kind of do. But it's a perfect example because our extra extra today tells the story from a woman in history in the 1970s this happened and I don't know if it was a man that got credit for her invention but it probably was it was probably a team of men who not only got credit for this invention but also then made and here's the key millions upon millions upon millions of dollars oh dear because of this yeah I would get petty if I were her yeah then it's not even petty right (laughs) then Then it's it's just like hey I want my money opposite of petty (laughs) yeah justified (laughs) anger I think yes (laughs) So this is what you have to look forward to in today's Extra Extra. We also have University of Arizona head women's basketball coach, Adia Barnes, who took the Wildcats on that epic NCAA tournament run two years ago with Ari McDonald. So Adia's on the show and then this Extra Extra. Now on the backside of this Extra Extra, Jess, I think that we have to activate. Call to action. Yes. Call to action. That's what we need. All right. So stay tuned for the call to action. But here is Adia Barnes. Our guest today is a former WNBA champion. She played seven seasons in the W. She was a first team All-America at Arizona, and was the 1998 Pac-10 Player of the Year. She is now the head coach at the University of Arizona. All right, let's do it. Let's bring her on. Adia Barnes. Okay, so we got a bunch of questions for you. Let's start here. Before you got into coaching, was there a time period where you had like other things you were thinking about doing? Was there, where were you on that transition? 
Well, so so I played for 13 years pro, and then I kind of got to that transitional point where it's like, okay, all you've done is play basketball. But I never had another job. So I thought, okay, let me see if first I was I was doing some broadcasting. I just retired. And the Pac-12 network was about to start that following year. And I did a few games for the Pac-12 and I was like, eh, like I liked it, but I didn't love it. And I found myself asking about coaching when I was there. And I just felt like you kind of go in, you don't really impact and then you leave. Like you study the game and leave. I then decided, okay, I'm done playing. I had met at the time, my boyfriend at the time was in Italy. And I was like, okay, well, let me see what I want to do for sure. I was supposed to move to Italy with him. And then I was going to still do some TV here once in a while. And then um, Kevin McGuff got the job at Washington. Mm-hmm. And then he called me. He was like, do you want to try to coach? And I said, let me try it. And I tried it and I loved it. When you got into coaching, was there anything, you know, you had played for so long, was there, or even in your college days at Arizona, was there anything where you're like, I'm never going to be the coach that does this? Like, I won't be throwing the clipboard. I won't be like breaking heels. No, I was like, I'm not going to be crazy. I'm not going to be cray cray. What about the workouts? Was there a, was there a workout you were forced to do in college? Some insane thing, right? Like 15 800s or something on the track that you were like, okay, I'm not sure I want to be that. Was there any, or was there a workout you did want to replicate because you thought it was so good? There's probably never workouts you really want to replicate because like when you're, you don't really think about it, you do so many workouts, but there's definitely ones that I did not want to replicate. There was one time in college I had to run like 117 sprints. I had the full day to do it and they were timed. I didn't have to do them all at once. Obviously I would have died, but I had the day to finish them. So I could go run like 50, then go back, whatever. It was from Joan Bombasini. But nowadays, if you did that as a coach, you'd be fired. Yeah. So there is no such thing as punishment running, which as a coach, it's like, really? Because how do you deter behavior? You don't like try to hurt someone, but you make them run if they miss the class, right? Yeah. We cannot do that anymore. Yeah. So like I can't, you can't equate like anything like strenuous, like physical for a punishment. So it's, it puts us kind of in a tough spot because we ran all day for punishments. You roll your eyes, you're like on the line. Like you miss class, you're on the line. One time I overslept. I set my alarm for 6 p.m. and I was like an hour late to workouts and I ran a lot. So we, we can't do that anymore. So no. it's different. Wait, I'm trying to come up with a reason for 117. Like if it was 30, I'd say you had 30 turnovers, not personally, but like the team. 117 sprints. What did you do? (laughs) I think I got like for every minute I was late, something like that. And I think it wasn't the first time. I was young. I was like 17 when I got to college. Like I would oversleep. And then I didn't have a roommate that was a basketball player. My roommate was a volleyball player. So it was hard for me. I was used to my mom waking me up. I was like a big baby. Mm. So, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. yeah, me and my coach, she's actually lives in Tucson. She does some like local TV for the Pac-12. So we always laugh about it because I ran for days. Yeah. I love this 117 in one day. Like, yeah, one day time. Like, I would get fired. Yeah. If I did that now, I'd get fired. Yeah, I was going to ask you the shift in generations. Like, as somebody who has studied a lot and written a lot about mental health and student athletes and the, just the shifts in culture, one of, one of these things is punishment running is probably most of the time no longer a go. Are there, what other Nothing. shifts have you seen between you playing in the late 90s and now? Gosh, there's so many. So definitely coaching style has shifted. So as a coach, you cannot like, I'm, that's not my personality, first of all, but like cussing players out, like degrading. One of the biggest things that you notice, like, I feel like in my generation, like if you were fat, if you're overweight, mm-hmm. you know, your coach will tell you you're overweight. The coaches cannot receive their weight. 
their body fat or anything, cannot address that. It's totally forbidden. Whatever, if you're if you're overweight, if you were fat. Coaches cannot be overweight. Cannot cannot address that. If you if you're, it's totally forbidden. Okay, Jess, we are in a rabbit hole because this was a topic that Adia brought up up on the surface about the differences between now and a generation ago in terms of weighing players. We've actually done an episode on, on not specifically this, but this idea in season one of Off the Looking Glass, where we talked to marathoner, Olympic marathoner, Kara Goucher in an episode called Soft Americans. So please go back and listen to that if this is a topic that interests you. But I thought we'd come down here because I think what Adia brings up is actually really relevant to today's game and also to professional athletes, female professional athletes, and a lot of like untalked about or less talked about issues when it comes to weighing, eating disorders. Mental health for sure, yeah. Mental health among female athletes at the high school, college, professional level. So I played in the same era as Adia and we did get weighed. And we got weighed, I don't remember how frequently, but let's say like about once a month. And I had teammates who were put on diets because they got weighed and their weight was deemed too high. And there was a long-term ramification from this. And it's to the point now where we don't own a scale in our house just because I don't want to have that like ability to have metrics rule how I feel about my body. But Jess, like it's still to the point where, yes, I don't have a scale in my house, but if I see a scale somewhere else in a friend's house and I use their bathroom, I will like use the scale because it's so deeply ingrained in me that that is a metric that I need, even if I don't need it all of the time. So I think let's just open the floor here to like to what Adia said and like how what your response was to it. Yeah, well, I think I have a lot of thoughts on this, so. We certainly are obsessed with weight and diet culture in this country to a extremely unhealthy degree, in my opinion. And we view your weight or your number, how much you weigh as a performance metric when there's like so many other things that can affect how you perform. Like, are you sleeping well? How's your, you know, schoolwork going? Like there's so many things mm-hmm. that might affect a, an athlete, especially a college athlete playing their sport more than the number on a scale. So I'm curious, Kate, if, Weighing athletes now is forbidden in college, for especially for female athletes. Is that a positive to you? You think that would have made your college experience better? I think it's unequivocally a positive for so many reasons. One, I think it's a flawed metric. And now you can argue, you know, different sports. Here we're talking about women's basketball. But there are other sports where you might say it's, it's more valuable of a metric. And we get into that in the Soft Americans episode, jumping off of the University of Oregon using those DEXA scans to get a very in-depth assessment of like a body fat, body measurement, all that in runners. But when it comes to female athletes at the college level getting weighed, I don't quite understand what that's offering a coach because a female body at that point is like in such transition still when you're in college, especially if you're a freshman or a sophomore. And so I think the long-term ramifications weighed against the actual value it gives to the coach. Yeah. It seems all that it's doing is that a coach grew up in this diet culture and is also probably have their own disordered eating because you grew up in America. (laughs) And now we certainly all do. (laughs) It seems like. And so it's like, 
a way to obsess about something that you actually probably need to do your own work on figuring out, even if you're the coach. It seems like also a way where if you're an athlete and you're getting weighed and your teammates getting weighed, you're constantly comparing yourself to your teammates when we know that physical ability and health is individualized to each person. There's no blanket number that everyone should be or or thing an amount of sleep that is perfect for every person, right? Like we're all different. And that I think leads to really dangerous ways of thinking when you're constantly being compared to your teammates because of a number on a scale. So, I mean, we certainly could talk about this for much longer and I'm sure we will at some point again on the show, but wanted to go down the rabbit hole and talk about a little bit of the weight stigmatization issue in college sports because Adia brought it up and it's, uh, it is something that has changed since you were playing basketball, Kate. Yes, and Adia as well. This was in the early 2000s, Jess. So I guess we will now, should we bounce back up to her? Let, let's see what else she has to say. Let's go back to 2023, yeah. Let's do it. When you got into coaching or even now, who was your, did you have someone where you were like, I love the way they coach. I just love their style. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I really, really respect Tara Vanderveer. I think she's. Um, that, I didn't expect a- that from you. I mean, not that you didn't respect her, but like, I feel like if we had t- if Tara on, it would be like, what do you want to ask me? Yeah, no, no, I think, no. Okay. So I would, I'm not saying exact style just cause she's, you know, she's older. She has a different generation, Yeah. but I really respected that her team is so prepared. Mm-hmm. She's not doing a ton in the games as far as like, she's not yelling. Sometimes she'll get on them, but I, I respect the fact that I've watched her and coaching against her all the time, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, like she's always like not having to do a lot cause they're so prepared going into games. And I also respect her for the fact that like I played against her as a player and now like I coach against her and like as a coach you got to be really prepared coaching against her the other coaches that I really like I mean I love obviously Becky Hammond I love in the NBA I love I love pop I love it because he's really a great coach and he's so honest like with the media he'll say it how it is mm-hmm. um you know I love Muffet I think mm-hmm. Muffet's someone I respect so much because they are women that, are, that speak up about women's issues and they, um, they're not afraid to say stuff that's true and like call people out. And then obviously I love Don Staley. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Don Staley, she's not like a yell or a screamer, but she gets on kids. I've coached with her with USA basketball. So I'd say she's like, you know, she's coached like 20 more years than me and she's a friend of mine. So I call her for advice or if I do something really stupid and like, I, you know, on Twitter or something, like the first call <laughs> I get will be like Don and Tara. And I'm like, ah, oh, you know what I mean? Like, but I like the fact that they'll tell me the truth about things and um, guide me and uh, you know just people I really really respect so when you started coaching as an assistant at Washington you hadn't thought that you would ever get into coaching at that point at what point were you like hey maybe I could be the head coach at Arizona someday how did that come about <laughs> well so when I first started getting into coaching it wasn't even a thought like I didn't know if I'd even like it I, I remember I didn't even ask my what my salary was with my first job it wasn't important it wasn't thought about um, I was just trying to see if I liked that. Like, I felt like I played long enough where I wasn't rich or anything, but I wasn't like stressed to get a job right that second. So I was kind of trying to see like, what are my passions? And like, I didn't really know what else because I didn't know what else. I had never done anything else. Everything had revolved around basketball. So um, my first couple of years coaching, I had just like, I was older when I started. And then like, I had a baby a couple of years later. So I just had a baby. And that was a huge adjustment. All my friends were still playing. So then... Arizona came up and I remember people asked me the year before they were like would you ever want to coach Arizona I was like no like because they were bad like they hadn't won since I played I was like I'm not taking that job that's not a good job like 
And I didn't feel like I was ready to be a head coach after five years. I had just had a baby. So I was like, I can't have a baby and like just go in the coaching. And then um, the job came open. Greg Byrne recruited me. And he's the AD at Alabama. Had a great connection with him. Loved him. And so I thought, okay, let me take a chance. But let me tell you, everybody told me not to do it. I mean, Nancy Darsh, who's passed away, but she's like a legend of women's basketball. Joan, actually, my college coach told me not to take it. Like five really influential people in women's basketball told me, Adia, that's not a good job. It was the lowest paying job in all power five. It was a job that like they had in one awful culture. So they all said, don't take it. Since you played there and you played there during like Bibby years, right? Yeah, my Jefferson, uh, Jason Terry, yeah, Mike Bibby, yeah, all those guys. And I like there, there were certain programs like Duke where the men were always amazing, and then the women got amazing. And you were like, well, the women should have always been amazing because they've got yeah. the cultural allure. And you can like you can come up with other examples where that has happened, and then places where it hasn't. And Arizona might have been one of those until the last five, six years. Did you have a did you have an assessment of like, well, if the men's program's amazing and people expect good basketball from Arizona, that is a leg up. And like, how did you think about how to leverage what Arizona means just in the general population? Well, and the, the funny thing is, at first, I didn't think about that. It wasn't really on my radar. At first, I thought, well, can I recruit here? I knew why I chose Arizona. I knew, um, you know, I knew I could recruit in California. I knew I could recruit. And I knew I had relationships to get kids, but I didn't really ever do the comparison or I would have never thought we would have went to the final four after four years. Mm-hmm. I would have never thought I'd been like, okay, 10 years probably. But I thought it was just a lot of work. When I got here, we were like 300 in RPI. So I thought it would take time, but I thought, okay, why did I choose it? You know, we have the facility. We had a new locker room. I felt like there was support because of men's basketball, but I didn't think it'd be support like it is now. I mean, now we're like 10,000 a game. Yeah. Like when I got here, it was like 300. So I thought... I believed in myself. I bet on me knowing like I could build it, but I thought it would take like 10 years. And if I could last 10 years, I don't know. But I kind of felt like I'm the type, I'm going to bet on me. I'm going to do everything I can control. So I'm going to work my hardest. I'm going to grind. I have relationships. I'm going to get kids. I, you know, I'm going to become a better coach because I was so young coaching. So I knew that I could do those things, but then like, what were the results? I don't know, but I was just going to try my hardest. And Arizona seeking its first ever title. It's been a run of firsts for the Wildcats. What is the impact of making a national championship run? Like, what is the aftershock of that for you and the program? The impact that I've seen, I think I'm I'm seeing more of it now, two years later, because I think immediately, like, that recruiting class is kind of done, and then people just are kind of aware. What I saw, and I didn't realize it really, um, I knew it was a big deal, but I didn't realize, like, how many people were watching. Like, I knew there was 5 million people watching, but... Like, I thought it was cool that, you know, I'd say, oh, this is a deer from Arizona. Everybody was like, we know you, we want, you know, it was kind of like, oh, like, I, I didn't really think that's how it was. I don't know what I was so naive about, but so many people had followed. And I felt like um, America, like, kind of fell in love with us because we were the underdogs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I didn't realize at the time, to me, it, like, went by so fast. It's like, God, I get back there. It wasn't even thought. But even now, they're like, oh, we watched you two years ago. We love the way you coached or... I was kind of like, oh, cool, because I just thought like people still didn't know about us, really. In as pure honesty as you can offer, did you think you had a team to go to the national championship game that year? No. They surprised you, too. Yeah. I knew we were good, but we had a lot of areas that probably... Okay, so if you looked at all the teams and like I'd say the final, like the Sweet 16, like every team had All-Americans. We had one. 
every team had multiple, like at least one or two, or like two or three conference players, or just really, we had like one dominant player who's actually said she's at my house right now. <laughs> she was so dominant, but we didn't have like another dominant player around her. We had some role players. And if you looked at our team, we couldn't shoot the ball really. Mm-hmm. But you could like sag off on us and guard Ari, which everybody did, but she still scored. We didn't have like firepower around her. If you looked at all those other teams in the final four, they had firepower. They had girth inside. We didn't have that. We had some really, we had some good athletes that could play defense, but we couldn't shoot the ball. And so I thought like, mm, you know, if you get that far, you need to go shoot it. You need to go spread. But our defense was so elite at that time. And like our rotations, like we were doing some high level stuff. When I look back, I'm like, I need to go back to there. Yeah. Um, you know, our defense was just good. And that's the only reason why we even came close to Stanford. They were a way better team. Like all those teams that play against UConn, they had a lot more talent. They were better basketball teams than we were. Yeah. Going back to the recruiting thing, if you had to look at percentages in your head of what recruiting is actually about, how much of it is it about, okay, the facilities I have, okay, the, you know, oh, the past records versus personal connection to player? Like what, what is that kind of breakdown as you look at it? I think the relationship is essential. It's really, really important. I think the way that they're comfortable with you and uh, good players, like, can you make them better and can they play for you? Like, well, I give them the freedom to play their games. And I think a lot of people saw that with Aria. I gave her freedom to play. Cross her arms at half court. I didn't care. I wanted to cross my arms too. You know what I mean? Like, I, <laughs> yeah. I had that connection. It was funny because when she crossed her arms, I wanted to be like, it was so funny. I was like, I'm not a player. You know, like, you get so passionate and you're in it. Go ahead, Aria McDonald. You can shoot till your arm falls off. So I think that connection, I think, nowadays like we're talking about today like it's funny the next thing would be nil like by far so like if i'm telling you if we had like 20,000 25 30,000 give each kid like i would be killing that recruiting like we would just get more just because like it's money it's nil and then i would say facilities and all that all the high level kids you're getting all the facilities are pretty good yeah so like does it matter that one person's facility is a little bit better not really i don't think that it's cool but i don't think it's um it's can you win it's NIL, and I think it's the connection to the coach. It can you make you better. But right now, I think the, even the NIL will trump that. Yeah. South Carolina, 25000 a year is huge. Like in the Pac-12, I'm like, we can't compete with that. Like, you know, so now I, you're going to see it trending that way. You're going to see a couple of schools. You'll see like the big schools and big programs that have money. They're going to do that. And they're going to get all the best kids because they're going to go get take money, which I don't blame them. Yeah. So we're going to have to like Pac-12. We're going to have to find out how to do that stuff. It, it, we're going to have to. Yeah. In full honesty, as much as I try to understand the NIL, I just don't know that I like I kind I generally understand it, but I don't think I see the long term ramifications of it. Like I just can't get my mind to understand what it might look like in ten years. I know. See, I don't either. I think in ten years it's gonna be like it's gonna be crazy. I think in a few years you're gonna see like twenty programs paying like twenty five, fifty thousand. That's I'm talking about women's basketball, not men's, like not football I'm, you're gonna see hundreds of thousands and whoever has the most p- money is gonna win because they're gonna get the best kids i think that's just gonna be how it is because the kids want to make money and for a lot of these kids they can make more money in college than they probably can pro mm-hmm. like airy would have made over 100 grand she would easily that that's more than she'll take home her first year in the pros her first two three years in the pros yeah so they'll ha- they'll want to go make money then play and win and the more you win the more money you'll make yeah, think about what she could have done with this. I know. Why, you know, Ari, it's funny we talk about that. Like, she would have made a lot of money. And it's funny, she would have came back. So her Trinity, and I think we could have won a championship, it wasn't out when they were transitioning to make their decision for the WNBA. 
that decision yeah. wasn't out. It came out a few months later and we talked about the whole year. She was like, I was like, I know. Yeah. I mean, they would have came back. It just wasn't out in time, which is unfortunate. One thing we always talk about on this podcast. Well, my seminal sports movie is a league of their own. Like that's like the one that I point to. I'll dress up as on Halloween. I want it to be named after the players, all of that. Do you have a, a movie that you loved sports movie? Years ago, I loved Love and Basketball. Mm -hmm. I felt like that was like my life. Like you're playing overseas. I could relate for years. Um, you know, some friends were in the movie. I think um, since then, I don't. Just because now I have kids, I'm so busy. You know, you know how it is when you have kids. Like you're, you're watching like Coco Melon. Like yeah. I didn't know the last time I watched the show. Like I watched Game of Thrones. I got like sneak at night, I fall asleep because like you don't have time. We hide the remotes. I can't find the remotes because <laughs> I'm hiding from my kid. It's like life is different. So like I don't watching like Ninjago 500 times and like Coco Melon. You mentioned, I mean, you played in like Russia, Italy, Israel, Ukraine. Yeah, Do you have any crazy story from one of those seasons? Like Simone Augustus talks about how one time the pilot took out an actual foldable map to figure out where they were going. Do you have any like wild overseas story? I remember in Russia being on the planes, those planes would never operate in America. Like it would be like an old, like old, old plane. I remember there was one plane that had like a chair, you know, had the seats that stop here. There's no headrest mm -hmm. and the seat could fold forward. <laughs> and I'm like, like that can't be safe. And they still had like the cigarette ashtrays. <laughs> Some of the Americans like would be really terrified to fly. I don't know how I didn't die on one of those planes. Yeah. Yeah. And you're flying through like Eastern Russia and you're like, mm, okay. And after I saw the movie Taken, I probably wouldn't have played overseas. Oh, yeah. In Ukraine, you would like call a car to like give you a ride. So people made extra money for like giving people rides. I would need a ride to practice. I didn't have a car one year. And so I'd flag a car down and get in the back of someone's car and get a ride to practice. I would never do that for a million dollars today. No. And I couldn't read the signs. I couldn't call the police. I could have been like stolen in like a second. I wouldn't have known where I was going. Yeah. Like I, I'm like, how did I do that? Like, that's crazy. You would only do these things if you were 25. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. 
And now, an extra extra about Karen Logan, about her place in basketball history, as well as the idea behind the first women's basketball. I felt like I got used and, and thrown away, and I didn't watch women's basketball. I didn't watch basketball at all. I just put it away and thought, I got to get over this, got to get on with my life. Every time I'd walk in a sporting goods store and see that intermediate ball, I'm just like, boy, this is hard. Before we get to the drama that kept Karen Logan from the game she loves, a little backstory. Because in fact, there's so much about the beginning of Karen Logan's story that feels like so many childhoods. Running around the neighborhood playing sports against the boys, not realizing you're different from them until it's impossible not to see it. Then having your eyes open to the opportunities that exist in sports, but just not as much for girls. Except here, at this moment, I can't claim to understand what Karen Logan's world looked and felt like because for female athletes, the generation difference between us, 1970 versus 2000, was everything. 1970 was pre-Title IX with only limited or makeshift options. Back then, if you wanted to walk a path in sports, you pretty much had to pave it yourself. Oh, um, that was wild and crazy. Patty Oman doing some fancy ball spinning. Brenda Moon using her hand in basketball. Sup, it's in. In an era which there was no formal women's basketball league, the All-American Redheads hit the scene looking to prove they were anything but a sideshow. That was a snippet from a piece done on the All-American Redheads upon their induction into the Naismith Hall of Fame. Now here's Karen again. At the time, it was the only place to play. There wasn't any women's professional basketball and a coach at Pepperdine knew the owner and said, if you want to keep trying to play basketball, this is probably the only place to play. So we contacted him. I tried out. Oops, this redhead got away for two points. We played 15,000 contracted games. We played seven nights a week and sometimes twice on Sunday. We have tried to sell goodwill for basketball all over America. While they'll always be known for their ability to entertain, the Redheads' legacy is their role in paving the way for women's professional basketball in the United States. They were a barnstorming, traveling, traveled all over the country in an airport limousine. Let's pause on that visual for a second. They're in an airport limousine. In an airport limousine playing what I would call entertainment basketball, a kind of akin to the Harlem Globetrotters. They would play some straight basketball. They could play. But at the same time, they would put on a show. So it was a kind of Pete maravich kind of, a lot of tricks. Honestly, we should do an entire Extra Extra just on the All-American Redheads, and maybe we will. But for this story, just know that Karen made $500 a month playing seven days a week, traveling the country, staying in motels, dyeing her hair red, and wearing stage makeup while probably spinning the ball on one finger. Of course, after a while, she couldn't keep up with the exhausting lifestyle. She'd also lost her chance at the Olympics because, you know, those $500 checks clashed with Olympic ideals. The amateur professional line was very clear and they weren't allowing professional athletes in the Olympics yet. So I just got immediately turned down. Karen, she just wants to play. So she takes part in network shows that are a beautiful artifact of the 1970s. 
Next Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern, CBS Sports presents the premiere of Challenge of the Sexes. Semi-famously, in one of those network competitions in 1975, Karen actually beats Jerry West in a game of horse. She made some money from these shows, which was nice, but what she really wanted was to play. So when she heard about the forming of the Women's Basketball Professional League in 1978, she was all in. Even before they officially tipped off, Karen was working with the league and its partners on promotion. And one of those partners was the sporting goods company, Wilson. And she had an idea, one she'd been toying with for a while. And here's where our story really begins. I'd always had an idea for a long time, even before the WBL, that I felt like every other sport had modified their equipment to fit women's size, strength, speed, etc. But basketball hadn't. I thought, this is the perfect time. This is the perfect time. I wanted to give the WBL as much chance of succeeding as possible and thought, I've had this idea for a long time. This could be a signature of the WBL. Back then, there were only two sizes of basketball, men's with a diameter of 29.5 inches and kids at 27.5. Karen's ball aimed to split the difference, as well as being proportionally lighter. When I first introduced the idea to the WBL, the commissioner, Wilson, I think, was headquartered in Chicago when I was in Chicago initially on that franchise. That franchise was the Chicago Hustle. And so we together, the Chicago people and me, contacted Wilson to see if they had any interest, and they did. There's a picture with Karen smiling and the mayor of Chicago holding up this new ball, the WBL logo emblazoned on the leather. At this point, Karen knew they were onto something. So she went back to Wilson. I said to them, gosh, do I need to like patent or get some legal rights to this? Is there anything I need to do to secure that this is my ball? I think you see where this is going. And Wilson said, oh, no, don't worry about it. We'll take care of you. I'm going, okay. And, you know, I mean, who knows? 45 years ago, that was before people had agents. That's before, I mean, I was in my 20s. And all I wanted to do was just play. And I was excited that this thing was going to get off the ground. And when they said, don't worry about it, we'll take care of you. I trusted that or assumed they knew what to do. I was just trying to be a player, just trying to help the league get started. By 1980, the WBL was on shaky ground. But its ball? Well, they had something there. I contacted Wilson and I said, hey, you know, this league might not make it. This ball is still mine. It's probably going to move forward. I need rights to this ball. And I just got to know, it's not your ball. You, You didn't secure that. A year later, as she watched the ball, her ball, adopted pretty much everywhere, she contacted a lawyer in New York who handled some serious lawsuits. She said, Hey, this is what's going on. I want rights to the ball that I designed. And he said, yeah, we can do that. There was one year left in the WBL, and he said, we can put an injunction on that ball and stop play immediately, and then we can go through the legal procedure. He felt like there was a pretty good chance that we would be successful. But then, as lawyers do, he said, I need a $10,000 upfront retainer fee to start all this, and I didn't have it. That's a lot of money back then. So I just walked away. Ouch, big ouch. 
For how long and how frequently did Karen think about this? For a lot of years, a lot, all the time. Karen moved back to Northern California and got her master's degree in psychotherapy. She still practices. And yes, she's used what she's learned on herself to try to heal. But still, for nearly three decades, every time Karen scrolled the TV guide, she'd see a WNBA game and she'd just keep scrolling. I just couldn't. I couldn't. Then a few years ago, she started telling her story. I realized I, I had not healed from this. And so this whole process in the last couple of years, realizing this is a story, wow. I've been watching the WNBA this year, and I'm amazed. I sit there and I'm going, look what you guys can do. And the ease and the grace, the skill, the proficiency, their game looks good. She even connected with Wilson and explained what had happened so long ago. They have searched their archives to find proof that I was at the ground level of designing and developing it. And they said, let us search our archives. And they did, and they found proof. They said, yes, there she is. But that was it. It was like, uh, wow, she did design the ball. It was her idea, and done. But she said she doesn't need anything from Wilson anymore. It's not necessary for me to have found peace and worked on my healing through this. That peace is not critical to me being okay with all this now. It would be icing on the cake, sure. It gave me an opportunity to discover more of who I really am, to take a healing journey, to find peace in trauma, to work through things that make us more. You take what wasn't so great and you use it as a catalyst to become more. It's done that. I am justifiably angry, Kate, at that Mm -hmm, story. mm -hmm. So what are we going to do about this? Even though Karen told me that it doesn't matter to her, that she has emotionally moved past this, that she doesn't need anything from Wilson. One, I don't totally believe her. Two, just because she's emotionally moved past it, I just found out about this. So I'm still, I'm still in, I'm still fired up about it. I still want to do something. So I don't know what we can do. Obviously, we have a huge platform here. And so we need to, we, I don't know, tag Wilson, hire a lawyer. Raising awareness is a good step. So when we had Don Staley on, we tried to bring back the Don Staley Nike shoe. Mm. But that got a lot of traction on social media just with like a cute little promo thing. Graphic, we, yeah. By graphic, yes. thank you. Um, so maybe we just make a graphic and be like, like this to thank Karen for inventing the women's Wilson basketball. Yes, and retweet it if you want Wilson to compensate her for the past <laughs> yes. sale of her basketball. Okay, would she would it. she be mad at us for doing this or like think it's funny? No, she she told me you go ahead and you do whatever you want. I don't need it, but you go ahead and do it. So I'm gonna believe her when she said that. Then we should definitely do this. Let's poke some fun at at the people at Wilson, make them acknowledge her publicly via our Twitter shame campaign. And hopefully yes. it gains some traction. We'll see. All right, let's do it. We should thank the people who helped us make this show. I can start here, Jess. I'm going to thank you, as always, for well, being thank you. the producer. 
also. extraordinaire and co-host. Thank you for thanking me as well. Also, Anya Alvarez for helping us make this show, and also Carl Scott for executive producing this show. And thank you to Joel Shupak for the sound design and help with making the show sound uniquely off the looking glass. And thanks also to Adia Barnes for joining us today and Karen Logan for sharing her story. We'll see you next week. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.